This episode is brought to you in part by Thomas Nelson, publisher of The Joy Challenge. Discover the ancient secret to experiencing worry-defeating, circumstance-defying happiness. Written by pastor and best-selling author Randy Frazee and is available everywhere audiobooks are sold. People in power have historically diminished the image of God in people of African descent. Based on someone's skin color, they were deemed less human, less worthy of dignity. But the doctrine of the image of God teaches us that pigment does not determine personhood. So as we look at this conference, from the very start, we wanted this to be a black-centered space and occasion. Not because we devalue other racial and ethnic expressions of Christianity, but because we value black expressions of Christianity. We value black expressions of Christianity in the midst of a society that has looked down on black people and black churches and black theology. You know, the only time I heard about black theologians in seminary was as the example of what not to do. So in that kind of context, we value black expressions of Christianity. We value black expressions of Christianity as a tribute to all that we have been through and all that God has done for us. We value black expressions of Christianity enough to want to share it with people of different races and ethnicities. We want to invite you into this beautiful picture. And it is a beautiful picture of diversity when we as embodied black people can bring our full selves and our full faith to the table. Now, 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 now like, like Pastor Faison, I'm an unapologetic apologist for the black church. But if you must be in a multi-ethnic, multicultural space, then it is only healthy to the degree that people of different backgrounds, different races, different ethnicities can bring their full selves without sacrificing their cultural heritage, their racial heritage on the altar of whiteness. Jay, I think we're ready, bro. Dynamic voices for a diverse church. This is Pass the Mic. We had to play your Malcolm speech. We had to play your Malcolm speech, bro. Man, I'm amped. Bro, how you doing, man? Um, It's everything, man. I put out a tweet a little while ago that said I felt numb, but not the kind of numb where you don't feel anything but where you feel everything mm. all at once and so yeah. it's anger it's frustration it's fatigue it's all of that right in the same moment and so it's difficult to sort of parse out one particular feeling um at the same time i'm energized because of people like you because of the people who are tuning in to this broadcast and a, a movement of people or at least a potential movement of people that can create change. So yeah. it's all of that. So I didn't even introduce, you know, I didn't do my, you know what? Ain't, ain't no greetings and God bless. <laughs> it ain't no greetings and God bless. So don't be up in here being like, he ain't do the, the standard intro and all this. And look, we, we decided, um, Jay and I were on the phone a few hours ago and we were like, yo, we just need to hop on live. 
and talk through some of the things that we feel like we're battling through and working through. So if you're tuning into this, um, this is Raw, this is PTM Live, and it's live for a reason. Normally, I like to be curated with my intros, with everything that's going on. I like to really parse it out and have all the questions lined up. We don't have any of that for this. And it's not because we haven't thought deeply about it. It's because we believe that it's necessary for us in this moment to be as transparent with you as possible, but also um, to identify and create a place of identification for everybody else who is going through that same process. So if you are black and Christian and you are processing this um, in all of your humanity and all of your complicated, flawed, you know, humanness um, in the, in the really difficult ways in which you're trying to parse through all these complex issues, this is a space for you. Um, so yeah, we just, we titled this George Floyd and an unjust nation on the brink intentionally. And we believe we're on the brink. And because this is a moment, moments require leadership and specific moments, you know, as we say in, in the church space, Kairos moments require leaders, leaders to step up and leaders to speak the things that need to be said. And uh, so we hope that this is a place where you will embrace and accept that. Um, and if you're white and Christian in this space, Welcome, but this is a Black Christian space. I just want to make that abundantly clear uh, because everything that we say and do is going to be coming from a Black Christian perspective. Yeah, Jay, I'm pissed, man. Say it. Speak on it. I'm pissed, man. Um, and I think what makes me so upset is in this particular moment, um, I, you know what I was thinking about a couple of, of weeks ago? Uh, even with Ahmad Arbery is, you know, a lot of people want to do panels in this time, right? A lot of people want to do these group discussions, right? Let's get, let's get five pastors in the room and let's do a group discussion, you know, or let's get on live and do a group discussion. And it made me so infuriated because I remember after Mike Brown in 2014, vividly from the time Mike Brown was killed in Ferguson to the time that George Floyd had his neck sat on by a malicious police officer. We have done so many panels. We have mm. done so many statements. We have done so many demonstrations and we still don't get it. And I'm pissed, bro. I, I just have to be honest with you. I'm tired. I'm tired. Like Ahmaud Arbery and Breonna Taylor and Atatiana Jefferson and George Floyd and Jordan Davis and Tamir Rice and Sandra Bland and Renisha McBride and Rakia Board, and Terrence Crutcher, and Alton Sterling, and Philando Castile, and Mike Brown, and Eric Garner, mm. and Trayvon Martin, and Amadou Diallo, and Sean Bell. Mm. I'm tired, bro. I'm, I'm, so, I mean, you know, people have been asking me, like, what do you think, and all this, and I've just been kind of trauma venting on, on social media, <laughs> you know, like, you know, which isn't healthy, but at the same time, you're like, man, I, I feel like the church needs some sort of clarion voice that says, man, when are we going to get it? Enough is enough. And so that's how I am. <laughs> Tell us how you really feel that. <laughs> Look, man, how many panels we going to do? How many panels we going to do? How many y'all want to do? How many is enough? How many hashtags yeah. do we need? And so when we're thinking about on the brink, I, I really want to ask you, what are we on the brink of, Jamar? What do you think we're on the brink of? You're looking at the, the unrest that's happening in Minneapolis. You're looking at Atlanta. You're looking at D.C. You're looking at demonstrations in major cities. And you're looking at a system that is not responding accurately to those demonstrations, a system that really doesn't take them seriously. Um, what do you think we're on the brink of? I think we're on the brink of transformation or retrenchment. Transformation or retrenchment. You got to spell them words, bro. 
<laughs> we got a smart audience. They know, they know. And they, I think we instinctively feel this, right? So, so we're on the brink of transformation because if these protests are more than a moment, but a movement, then we can see some significant change, change on the level that we saw in the 50s and 60s with laws changing, with attitudes changing. But change and transformation never comes without resistance and victory is not guaranteed. So we could be looking at retrenchment, which would be the extension and the reification of white supremacy, which we've already seen in some forms already. Uh, the 2016 militias, alt-right. Yeah, yes, yeah. alt-right, you know, all of that is is uh, pushback, is white lash, again, it's retrenchment of white supremacy. And so after this, I mean, look, we're just in such a moment, right? Like, can we recognize that that the litany of, of lament that you just went through, listing all those human beings who had become hashtags, one of the things that I've said before, a lot of people like to say history repeats itself. No, it doesn't. The context and the conditions of historical events are all unique. And so history rhymes. There's echoes for sure. But but there's never an exact repeat. And I say that to say because in 2020, even though we've seen yet another black man killed by a white police officer on video, guess what's different? We have this particular president. Guess what's different? We're in the midst of a pandemic. Guess what's different? Social media and the savvy of people who are using it. So so, so we're on the brink. I think you're right to say that we're on the brink because the conditions and the context right now is unique to this moment. And, and it's different from even two years ago, five years ago, 10 years ago. And so what can happen in this moment, what, what, what makes me feel like we're on the brink is that an issue that occurred physically and geographically in Minneapolis has spread nationwide and it's coming in the midst of all of these other issues and problems and burdens that people are feeling. And so folks, I think in a broad sense, feel like you do fed up, tired. And so what comes out on the other end of this, I don't know, but we are on a brink. We're at a crossroads. I think, you know, in, in speaking of retrenchment, I think the church is on the brink of losing all moral credibility in society. Mm. Mm. And, you know, I understand that there is a difference in white evangelical church and black church. I understand that there is a difference in churches um, that preach empire theology, slaveholder religion. I understand that, you know, but I do think that there is such a connection and, and, and intertwining of evangelical church with all those other church forms that it makes me think that we're on the verge of of no longer having a morally credible voice in society, if that hasn't already happened. And you know what's so interesting about this is whenever people say, I, I hear it all the time, people say this, and I talked about this uh, this morning, people say this, they're like, man, we shouldn't we shouldn't do it this way, and the riots and the, the looting, it's not gonna accomplish what, and I'm like, ain't no rioter listening to y'all. <laughs> no rioter is listening to the church. No rioter is saying, well, what does the church think about what I'm doing? Because they do not respect our authority. They do not believe we are a morally credible voice. And that's our fault. Like, like where does that come from? Yeah. That comes, that comes from decades of inaction and complicity. And here's the thing. Because we were not willing. I, I really feel like it really goes back to the 90s. You know, Because in the 90s, there was this explosion of a lot of different movements. 
And there were the explosion of a lot of different Christian movements as well. So the Promise Keepers was at its height in the 90s. And then you also had on the Pentecostal side, you had this great sense of Azusa reviving back up. You know, you had T.D. Jakes rising to prominence. You had all these different all these different people and groups. And what happened is in the 90s, when we could have had critical conversations, there was this sense that everything was normalizing. Mm -hmm. There was this sense that everything was going back. I mean, people were economically doing well near the end of the 90s. And then 9-11 happens in 2001. And now we're like, well, wait a second. You know, like, what's what's going on? And, and now that was a moment where we weren't building, you know, my, my coaches in, in basketball, we used to always say, you know, you can tell the people who, when they come back the next year, haven't touched the basketball since the last game we played. You can tell mm-hmm. because because the fundamentals are off. They haven't been working on their game in the offseason. They weren't preparing for the time of turmoil. They weren't preparing to push themselves to the brink. And that's what the church did. I feel like it's this crucial period in the 90s where we just put everything on autopilot and the church was booming and we were getting everything we want. Even, even if we didn't have, even if the mainstream evangelical church didn't have the presidents they wanted, they were still collecting in movement. And then black churches were still growing and there was this mega church movement. It was like, oh, everything's great. And now we're seeing turmoil. We're like, what happened? It happened a long time ago. It never happens at the moment that it happens. It happens in years of inaction, years of ignorance, years of not addressing latent issues, years of not having hard conversation, years of not connecting with the community, years and years. It's decades and we're all complicit because we acted like there was no problem. And then when Trayvon Martin happens, this happened long before. If I'm not mistaken, Amadou Diallo was killed in 99, if I'm not mistaken. I could be wrong on my dates, but he was killed a long time ago. We missed the opportunity. Rodney King. King. We missed the opportunity and we haven't taken those moments. And now we're reaping um, the rotten fruit. We're reaping rotten fruit. And that's the issue. And and it happened a long time ago. It's not now. We're looking around. We're like, man, what, what should we have been doing in the last six months? No. What should we have been doing in the last 26 years? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And that's the issue. Well, it makes me think, it makes me think, um, you know, a lot of my time and attention, our time and attention has been focused on like society, the nation, the country, and calling for reforms and even revolutions. And maybe the place to start for us is revolution in the church, reformation in the church. You know what I'm saying? And I know that, that language gets thrown around a lot, but but what does it look like if we take a good, hard look at the way we've been, quote unquote, doing church as, as a pandemic has forced us to do in some ways, right? Uh, saying, what are the essentials here? What what do we, what what is really needed um, and and um, critical in, in the way we do church? Perhaps now is also the time to say, what is our voice? Where has our focus been? Where have we put our treasure, our hopes? Because if it's not, not in serving the marginalized, serving the oppressed, standing in solidarity with the people who are downtrodden, uh, then we have some major reevaluation to do. So I just, I just also want right? to say like, this. I just also want to say this before you continue. And this is just this is different from a podcast. So we're just going to pop back and forth and interrupt each other and do all that. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. I, like I said, ain't no greetings and God bless. If you just tuned in, I didn't start with that. Ain't none of that. Anyway, so Leonard in the chat, he was saying also this theology of of waiting for your reward um, on one end and prosperity theology on the other which I think is so important for us to point out because this context of 
because you know you know the the common phrase we're so heavenly minded right because it's like man we just passing through ain't no big deal this world going to hell in a handbasket and then on the other side it's like prosperity theology we get everything now we get everything that we want we you know name it claim it you know blab it grab it it's like all this stuff and, and so on on both ends there's that sense that it creates this climate not just of inactivity but then we start promoting doctrine that plants the seeds for a hostile takeover from white supremacy. White supremacy has come back. We do not have the capacity and the equipment to fight white supremacy. It is making a hostile takeover. And it is years and years and years of these theologies that he's talking about. I think it's so that's that's, um, that's so true and that's so right. And it's important for us to name that because the way we're doing it now, as you talk about the way we do church, it's different now. But we're slicker mm. about our prosperity theology. It's slick now. It's not flashy. People, people, people caught on to that game. People caught on to the Rolls Royce, the Benz, the the Jag, all that. People caught on to that game. People caught on to the to the three piece suits. People caught on to all that. You know, now it's now it's real slick. Now it's in the way that we present things. Now it's in the way in the in the perfect life that we have. Now it's in you know where we're where we're living. We're living in gentrified areas. That's the prosperity Mm -hmm. gospel now. Mm -hmm. You know, like we're sending our kids. Not to schools in low income areas, but we're sending them to the best and brightest possible school. Like that's that's the prosperity gospel now. Like it's different than you know these overt ideas that came before. And so that again is it is it is desensitizing us to the hostile takeover, the present hostile takeover of white supremacy in the church. And it creeped up on us. And in 2015, we were not prepared to fight it, and we get Trump in 2016. And now again and again and again and again. And and we have to name that. Go ahead. Yeah. Yeah. So all of that you said at the end of the day leaves us unprepared for persecution, leaves us unprepared for the intensification of the troubles that have all already been present. And so I've been thinking a lot about I think I think there obviously are valid critiques of the church in general, the U.S. church, the black church. Right. But there's also sort of an overcorrection. Um, where give me give you one example of oftentimes black churches have been critiqued for uh, preaching a sort of complacency with the status quo and looking forward to the sweet by and by for deliverance and and the implication is that when you preach that way it leads to a sort of quietude and a complacency about injustice right now. I think that's absolutely true in some circumstances, in some situations. But but the flip side is this, and I think we're experiencing it, so maybe we can hear it a little better, that there have been long periods in U.S. history where black people have not had a reasonable hope of immediate change. I think of enslaved people in 1810, 1820. The Civil War is not on the horizon for them at that point, nor is the outcome of that war guaranteed. Uh, Legislation is not moving forward. Contemporary attitudes don't seem to be changing. And, and, And how does the faith come in in that situation? Well, number one, people are resisting all the time, right? So even in the most dire circumstances, uh, black people and black Christians in particular have never stopped resisting. But at the same time, I think they had a sober kind of faith, a mature faith, I would say, that says, you know what, things may not change here. And that's not a cop-out 
it's it's the reality that we're actually not placing our ultimate hope in change right here, right now. Do we want to see it? Yes. Are we willing even to put our lives at risk for that change? Yes. But guess what? Enslavement may not end. I may not get 40 acres. My children may not have health care or uh, an adequate public education. Those things are good. But I think what this time is testing us as, as believers is where do we truly put our hope? Can we work and fight and not see the progress we want to see and still be people of hope? Still be people who want change? Yeah. And, and, you know, I'm wrestling with that. I'm wrestling with that. And, and not because I don't believe that in the theory. Not because I don't believe that rhetorically. Not because I don't believe that theologically. Like, I'm wrestling with the extent to which we are to accept what we are experiencing. Like, what is the extent to which we are to accept it? Like, I, I thought about it from this perspective. Like, um, man, what is outside, if we were in a non-coronavirus, let's just put us back in 2014. What, what was stopping us from going to Ferguson? Like, what was stopping us from going to Ferguson? Like, what, what did we deem more important than being where, where the center of history at that moment was taking place? And, and, and almost some of us, and, you know, I had this conversation with um, a few of our church members in the context of a group, you know, we, we were having uh, this conversation about George Floyd and the people who filmed him, right? Filmed him being killed, you know? And so uh, we're having this conversation of, would you film him at a certain point? And, and I'm not saying you do this recklessly or this is not, this is not what I'm talking about, but I'm saying at a certain point, don't you create a barrier between him and him and his murderer, his would-be murderer, don't you create a barrier? Don't you do something more than what, you don't just accept this is going to happen. Like, okay, I'm filming it. This is going to happen. And save yourself and save your life and live to see another day and all this. And I'm not talking about violent action. I'm talking about, isn't it the self-sacrificial Christian response? Isn't it our reasonable service to stand in the path between those who would harm others because we say we love our neighbors? And it's almost like, well, we, we, we've gotten into this mode of we just accept stuff. We just accept this is just what's going to happen. No, stop, man. And it's, but we're not willing to put ourselves on the line. We're, we're saying that from a safe distance is what I'm saying. And, and I'm, I'm just getting into this point of like, at a certain point, our faith, our faith has to be prophetic enough. And our faith has to be um, rooted enough for us to no longer prioritize accepting the status quo of oppression. At a certain point, it has to change. And that doesn't mean that we don't preach the gospel. That doesn't mean that we don't do discipleship. That's not what I'm talking about. But I'm saying, if we're saying that we live in an unjust nation and an unjust, unjust society, when will we be willing to take the next step that is necessary to put ourselves on the line so that it will be confronted in the name of Jesus? Not just with well, our words and not just with our posts and not just with our panels, but maybe right. with our bodies. I mean, like, when is that? Like, what, what would keep us? Like, what keeps us from being in these places advocating for these people who are unsure of if the church, who, who don't believe that the church has anything to say about this? So I think that's the on the brinkness of this moment, um, because what is constantly sort of running in the back of my mind is, what is what is the next step? What is the next level? Right. 
and what and, and it's what you're talking about is actually putting things on the line, not speaking prophetically from safe distance, which you can argue is not necessarily even prophetic at all. Um, yes. So I do think the on the brinkness is us as believers deciding what 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 cost are we willing to put up for this? What are we willing to lay down? for the sake of justice. And so I do think there are a lot of people fed up. Uh, a lot of them have been organizing for a long time. A lot of them are on the streets right now. But but right now for us who aren't necessarily in the epicenters of these things, um, it is a question of what is it calling? Are we called to give something more in this moment? And the only point I want to make with my previous statement is what if we don't win? If the prospect, if you knew you weren't going to win, would you still engage in this struggle? Right? Man, Think about this. Question, that's you're going into question. the championship. You're going into the championship game. Your opponent is strong. And there is a possibility that you might not win. But do you still go out and play the game? Do you still go out and compete? Because it's for the team. It's for the struggle. It's for the mission. And that's where I think the mature faith comes in. You see, because a lot of us get into this struggle thinking that we're going to achieve something when the reality is that the forces of evil and white supremacy and the strongholds that are in the world are very powerful. No, and that's what there is no guarantee. And listen, but here's the thing, Jamar. We get into this, and it should be said, we get into this struggle when there are enough people present already in the struggle. We got a who all going to be there mentality with the struggle. We get into it. We get into it when it is safe enough. And I see it so much. I see it, man. And this is what one thing the church has got to stop doing. The church has got to stop applauding people who are just now coming around and saying a one minute video clip. I'm so sorry. I'm sad. I can't believe this. Normally I would wait, but I just feel like I should say something now. And we got to stop rewarding this who are all going to be there mentality. We got to stop rewarding these people who are only flying in because now it seems like the consensus. We got to stop rewarding the people who are saying this is an injustice, yet sitting on the president, president's evangelical council. We got to stop wow. rewarding those people. We're telling those people, oh, you did it. Thank you for speaking out while you're empowering the, the very person at the top of the country who continues to create a divisive environment, a truly divisive environment based upon threatening people's lives on Twitter. And you don't challenge that. But now all of a sudden you think you can have it both ways. And we have a who all is, who's all going to be there? Oh, okay. This person's going to yeah. be there. Oh, that person. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. We're in now. And that's a mess. We got to call that stuff out. And, but it's in us too, because we're and like, yo, we even, we even, we even do this. Like I did this last night. Um, I put myself on blast. Like I did this last night when it comes to um, when it comes to a local protest. So you come and you don't just help stop it. Well, first of all, I'm trying to social distance, right? I'm trying to social distance. It's impossible to social distance at a protest. But so I'm I'm walking up. Protesting in a pandemic. Yeah, you. I mean, it's just totally different, right? And so I'm walking up, and then I'm looking. I'm like, who all who all here? Who all here? And I'm looking for the certain people. I'm like, okay, is it this person? Is it that person? Is is so and so here? Is that person here? Is this is this activist here? Is this pastor here? And you stand off to a distance until you feel like it's safe because you don't want to be seen associating with certain groups of people. If that gets out, what's it gonna be? And we yeah, all yeah, ourselves yeah. have to unlearn that mentality of 
if, and this is the thing, this is the thing, and this is the thing with protests, it's the thing with injustice, it's the thing with our stands. Why are we afraid to be seen with the people that we that we say God loves enough to die for? Mm. Why are we afraid to be seen in certain spaces? And this is the, the root cause of protest. We go to safe protests. Mm. We go to protests where it's, it's a number of people there that we know, oh, okay, I got my people. Why are we not willing to sit alongside the same people, the very same people so, that the Pharisees called the Pharisees called Jesus a, yeah. a, a drunkard and a glutton for mm. sitting next to certain people? And we're afraid to even be seen with somebody holding a sign, man. It's just, I don't think we're ready for this. Like, what do we mean? We're not ready for this, man. We are not ready for what we say we want. So it's a lot. <laughs> I know. I said, look, what look. Said to unpack. That's good. I, you t- um, you said. I told y'all at the beginning, <laughs> but you said, bro. Let's be let's be real. I'm just being real with you. So so absolutely, and I think there's a lot to to what you said needs to be heard, and what I'm trying to say is is a corollary to that is when G- Jesus tests people all the time where the true allegiances lie. To the rich young ruler, right? To to the people, he said, "You gotta you gotta drink my blood and eat my flesh, right?" What are you in this for? Is what Jesus is asking. Are you in this for the crowds because it's popular right now? Are you in this because you're going to get status and people are going to pat you on the back for being a good person, et cetera, et cetera? And so I think this is one of those times when Jesus is saying to those of us who call ourselves Christians, "What are you in this for?" Are you in this for the victory, for the laws changed, for the you know legislation passed, et cetera? Are you in this for the retweets and the likes? Are you in this for the pats on the back from whomever that says, oh, you're working for justice. That's such a good thing. Or are you willing? Are you in this for Jesus and for the people that Jesus loves enough to stand alone is, I think, what you're saying, enough to to stand not just alone, but with the people who have been despised and rejected and and who, if you associate with, people are going to say all kinds of things about you. And I think that's such a critical point that you bring up because it's a, it's a point about idols. It's a point about allegiances. It's a point about who we really call God. And this is a moment where we're on the brink where, oh my goodness, it's actually going to cost us more. And, and for some people, it's already cost us some, but it, it might cost us more in this moment to stand up for what we believe in and who we say we believe in. And that's honestly chilling. That's a frightening thought, bro. Yeah. And, and, and I think it's also a time for black Christians. And this is for you know black Christians. I know we have a diverse audience who's watching on Facebook, but I, I think it's important to say to black Christians, it also, when we talk about what, what it's going to cost us, now we also need to talk about where we pay that cost. And we need to mm. talk about the spaces that are worthy of that cost. And especially in a time in a time of pandemic, we we had. I, I'll tell people this: we I recorded a um, a podcast with Dante Stewart for PTM that's going to be coming out soon. And Dante and I talked about this idea, um, and I won't give away everything, but Dante and I talked about this idea of being the first. And he brought up such a a, a brilliant point about being the first, and when you're the first, you're afraid to speak prophetically because you have so much to lose. Mm. And I think at this point, the question has to be asked, what is the utility of being applauded in places? Mm. What is the utility of being seen in places? What is the utility of the history of being the first to do fill in the blank? 
first black this, first you know black man to be in this space because it's often typically black men. We're we're the people who just fall in love with it, you know. Um, what is the utility of that if we cannot truly speak? And what why are we paying costs in places? Um, why are we throwing seed on on stony ground? Paying costs in the places that don't accept the currency. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> they ain't even taking your money. Mm-hmm. And you given all your effort and your energy. And at the end of our lives, I, I feel like, man, uh, I feel like there will be a great regret for so many black Christians, a great regret, a great mm. regret that they spent so many years. They spent so many years in places that did not fully accept their dignity. I feel mm. like there will be a I want I don't want it to be, but I feel like there will be decades, decades later, there will be a great regret. Where people mm. will sit back and say, I I should have, I should have left after this situation. I saw who they were, I didn't believe it. I should have left. And not because they wanted to leave the church, but because they wanted to leave spaces that we're not willing to accept all that Jesus requires of us. And they go away sad because the requirements are too, like you were talking about, the requirements are too heavy. It's too great. And I don't want there to be regret, black Christian regret at the end of our lives where we're talking to our kids and grandkids who have caught on to this and now understand it. And we're telling them, don't waste time like I did. Hmm. Hmm. I mean, it sounds like the the radical road, right? Like it yeah, sounds yeah. like we're faced with the decision of of Jesus saying, uh, you know, count the cost, because not everybody who says they want to follow me really knows what it entails and what it requires. L- let me you know? let me give you let me give you. I'm sorry. I'm just I'm you know <laughs> go off. Go ain't off. no greetings and God bless. Um, let me just say this. Here's one of the ways I think it can be seen in a very practical sense is this needs to be said and 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 we will be the ones who say it and we will hopefully toes, if, if the Lord. Toes. No, I'm just saying if the Lord, if the Lord, I don't, I don't want to say this brashly because we are so often complicit ourselves as black men in this. But if we are not willing to take a strong, principled, unashamed stance that Breonna Taylor and black women like her should be alive today if we are not willing to name them in these protests, if we are not willing to name them in these rallies, if we are not willing, as my sister Akemini Wan said a little bit earlier, um, if we're not willing, if we're only willing to highlight men like like Killer Mike or T.I. who stand up and speak, but not Tamika Mallory. Right. If we're only willing to talk about men, if we're only willing to talk about the people who we have videos for, isn't it so interesting? We don't have that many videos of black women getting killed by police. And yeah, it's because of different settings, but it also shows the value in society. Oh, this black man who I've seen to be, who I think to be magical and who I think to be, you know, super strong, supernaturally strong, who I think to be a brute. Oh no, he's being subdued. He could die. Let me take a video of this because I can't believe it. Subconsciously, there's that same racist mentality that comes down that says black men are so strong. They should never be overpowered by police. They should never be overpowered by someone else. But then when it's black women who are being abused, how many videos are there? How many times are we taking inventory? How many times have we marched in the streets? How many times have we took a stance? And, And it needs to be said, that if it takes a video for you to stand for somebody, 
if it takes, man, let me just wait to see if I'm not even talking about from the white Christian perspective. I'm talking about from black Christian, especially black Christian men. If that's what it takes for you, we're not ready for this. <laughs> we're not ready for this. We are selectively advocating. Yeah, I've I've long said that that um, highlighted the point that others have made that racism is gendered, that it. it impacts and influences women differently than men and especially black women. And you were talking uh, about the the 90s and uh, the racial reconciliation movements that kind of really took off then. Uh, Shaniqua Walker Barnes, who I hope we'll have on uh, um, an upcoming episode. Say that. Yes. Yes. Incredible, incredible analysis of the gendered nature of the evangelical racial reconciliation movement and how it essentially not just left out black women, but Further, their marginalization and oppression in some ways, and so what you're bringing up is 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 absolutely a critical thing that we want to highlight on on past the Micah show, uh, hosted by two men. Um, so that's that's a critical thing. I want to bring up another topic that you and I have talked about. Is there? Do you think um, a a a lack, a silence, a gap in leadership right now? Like, who are the people? that we're looking to in this moment of unrest, of confusion. You know, I, 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 I imagine in, in a battle, right. When the, when, when the chaos is, is around, you're looking for the captain, you're looking for the Lieutenant, you're looking for your Sergeant to, 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 to give marching orders to direct. Are we retreating? Are we advancing? What are we doing? So who are those voices right now? Social media killed them all off, bro. (laughs) (laughs) What you mean by that? I man, I don't know. Who are the leaders? Who who are they? I don't know. I mean, and I'm not saying they don't exist. I'm just saying who are the who are the people not on? It seems so segmented. And and this is something that I think should be said for you know, Black Lives Matter put themselves on the line, you know, and it's not my intent to criticize them because they were there and I wasn't. You know what I'm saying? So when we talk about Ferguson and the development, um, you know, even post Sanford with Trayvon Martin the development of Black Lives Matter. But it's really important for us to say, like, a lot of the overcorrection, there was a pendulum swing away from this centralized leadership that we saw in the civil rights movement, which was easily targeted by the status quo. You know, COINTELPRO, some of the others, you know, Fred Hampton was killed. Like, they, they were able to infiltrate and undermine strong leadership, vocal leadership, present leadership. But then on the flip side, now we swung the pendulum to the other side, which is um, a sense of decentralization. Like, so decentralized that now it's, you know, we go to, and that was the thing, like, you know, we go, we go to some rallies and I'm like, who is in charge here? Like, what's like, who am I supposed to look to if something goes South? Like, not like, Oh, I have to see the person and know the person who's in charge. Like, I'm not talking about a manager. I'm talking about like who, if it goes, if it goes down, who's going to be that clarion voice that says, follow me. Um, And if we're honest, Jamar, I think a lot of people are afraid of that. Hmm. A lot of people are afraid of that. That's what I mean by social media killed them off. People are afraid to stand in that spot because they know that if there's anything that they have done in the past that has been um, less than stellar Mm. and that they have not scrubbed from the record, it will be used against you. And most people don't have the capacity to stand in front of people and say, most pastors as well don't have the capacity to stand in front of people and say warts and all, flaws and all. I believe that God has called me to lead. And I'm not talking about gross abuse and misconduct misconduct and infidelity and those types of things. But I, I'm human and I'm flawed and I've, I've grown a lot over the past few years. 
we're afraid to, we're, we're scared, man. We're scared. And, and I think there's a sense in which we don't know what the tactics are. You know, we don't even know mm-hmm. what tactics people are using. And so again, I think it gets back to, we haven't been preparing for years for this moment. Mm-hmm. We haven't been preparing in the off season. And so I think the leaders, um, the ones who are sp- stepping up, and I do believe there are some who are, um, are, are even in themselves apprehensive, even in themselves hesitant, even in themselves not knowing what does my leadership require? That's the bigger question. Like, what is, what is, when someone says, well, I'm the leader, well, what does that mean? What is leadership in this moment, in the time of a global pandemic and the pandemic of racism? What does that require of someone? Yeah. Yeah. So that's a long answer to a short question that I don't know. (laughs) We have a lot of people offering opinions, including myself, um, that aren't offering necessarily leadership. And the, the the way I noticed this, and I could be totally off, was is, is you know in the midst of uh, these protests, like who is being passed the mic as a spokesperson, right? Um, I get the sense that it's almost random, like who's a bystander here, or you know who happens to lead this local organization, but we don't actually know much about them. Uh, who? of anybody might be able to offer an opinion that's going to get us clicks or likes or whatever it might be. Um, as opposed to, you know, movements in the past where you knew who you needed a statement from, you knew who was speaking for the organization or whatever. What even are the organizations now? Right? Like, so I'm seeing a lot of justice for George Floyd. Um, I'm seeing, but, but nothing like the black lives matter hashtag, uh, it doesn't feel like it's being used with the same frequency in 2020 as it was in 2015. You know what I'm saying? And so what does that say? Uh, yeah. Yeah. Go ahead. No, I just want to say, I think, I think um, Aaron in the chat brings up a really good point about, you know, the irony of being hesitant about your stuff coming out when, when you, when you have a president who has so much stuff, <laughs> you know, it's a bag full of stuff that we could point out. Cause we know um, the standard ain't the same. <laughs> right. Exactly. And that's, and that's, that's a great point. And it's ironic um, but it is the nature of being, you know, twice as good is that double standard. Um, Veronica pointed out, you know, we're too busy. We're so busy putting each other down. We don't build each other up. My Lord. And I, I think that's so. And then I want to get to Jillian's comment, too, because I think it's really. Um, man, there's so many comments. Oh, my goodness. Y'all are killing it with these comments because I really want to get to. These. I can't even see these comments. I'm missing out. Oh, well, they you know, <laughs> it, it's, it's a cold world. Host. It's okay. a cold world. But anyway, uh, <laughs> you know, it, it um, man, so many good comments. OK, so let me talk about Veronica's and, and the idea of putting each other down. I think that's something I've been really convicted about. I've been convicted about the fact that we don't have it ain't that many of us. Right. Like it's it's not that many of, and I don't mean in the like the Elijah sense. I'm the only one. We're the only ones. But it's just not that many people who are young black Christian and not bought. Mm. It's just not that many. You know what I'm saying? And even saying that is controversial in and of itself. But y'all know what I mean. Um, <laughs> and so I think the the primacy in this moment is for us to really come together. And I think you know we're trying to do some things at the witness that'll be a little bit different than what it had been before as far as some voices that we're going to bring on and some people, because we're trying to bring on, like we haven't had certain people on the podcast. We haven't had certain people write for the blog. We haven't had certain people on the live chat. And it's like, why not? Like at a certain point, minor differences and disagreements give way to the fact that we need to be a united front around these core issues, which we do agree on. Um, 
And then I think Jillian brings up this point of, are they hesitant or are they tired or just really tired, right? Um, I think that's true. I think, yeah, I mean, yeah, there is that, there is that fatigue. What do you think about that? Are we just tired, Jamar? I think there's an ideological component to it. So you you had mentioned before, as we look at the civil rights movement, what, what activists in the 21st century have done is try to correct for the deficiencies of the movement, which we don't talk about enough, right? Like that not only was it this um, sort of great man kind of context, but uh, in addition, it was very patriarchal and misogynistic. It didn't leave room for women and women's voices and et cetera, et cetera. And if you look at the Black Lives Matter um, founders, it's almost the complete opposite of what the stereotypical idea of a civil rights leader is. So civil rights leader was a, a, a black male clergyman and and the modern day civil rights is black queer women. Right. Or, or other folks who are similarly marginalized historically. Um, and so I think it's good to learn from previous movements and to build on what they did right and correct for what they did wrong. But at the same time, I think there's an ideological hesitance now for people to step up and be the leader. I mean, number one, it's hard to say, hey, I am the leader, right? Like it, it's something more that comes to you than you choose it in in the in the best of circumstances. Um, I, I got to shout out Malcolm to too. This is a good point. Malcolm says there's exhaustion and there's trauma. That is that is different. Yes. Thank you. Thank you Dr. Foley. Go ahead. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. I don't know. I mean, I think the the people who are passionate for better or worse trudge along, you know. We're we're still in it. Yeah. And I, I think there's an ideological hesitancy because they think it's the wrong thing to do. So I do think that's true. But again, I think this gets back to discipleship, Jamar, because here's the thing. Like if where where's your home space and where's the space where you can go? We got to be really tactical about where we're where we're recharging our energy. We have to be really tactical. I'm going to be very honest about something. I probably shouldn't say this out loud. But there was a person who offered me a um, a job opportunity. And so he offered me a job opportunity and it was in a predominantly white space, multi-ethnic, but predominantly white space. And it was attractive to me in a lot of different ways. And I had to be honest with him. I was like, bro, um, I feel like I'm going to have to fight out there and then come back and fight back here. And I can't fight at home. And if I'm fighting at home, I have nothing to give my family. I have nothing to give myself. I have nothing to give anybody else. And so when I say discipleship, what I mean is, you know, pastors at we as pastors have to be really intentional about the spaces we're curating. And then as leaders and activists in the world, which I don't know if we would consider ourselves that as much as, you know, leaders in this you know small movement, we have to be tactical about where we're recharging ourselves and where we're actually spending and expelling our energy. Um, yes. Because I think that's what's that's what's missing in, in this. People are not being pastored. Like people aren't really being pastored. People don't like pastors care about like we as pastors care about metrics. Like we care about money. We care about butts in seats. We care about, you know, how many views we're getting on the live stream. We care about what building we're going to buy. We care about our, our PR, our press. We don't care about people's souls. Like we don't care about their hearts. We don't care about their bodies. And I say this as a pastor because it's so easy to get into this metrics game. And we got to care about people's hearts and souls. And we got to we we need a movement of people and of Christian leaders who are willing to lovingly pastor activists, not to police right. them and mute them, but so okay. that their souls are healthy, because that's another so, thing. Pastors, we mute them, we police them when that's where they're called to be. One body, many members. Right. 
<laughs> right. So what you bring up is a vitally important point. I always make this point. It, it was a revelation to me as I was sort of starting to distance myself from these white evangelical spaces. It was a revelation to me that when MLK, just as one easy example, when he was doing his work and facing all of this persecution, death threats, all opposition, he had the black church to go home to. Now, granted, he was a leader in every space, so there's no, there's very few places he could just sort of let, just relax, right? But at the same time, if he gets in a pulpit in a black church space and talks about racial justice, talks about the movement, uh, especially a home church kind of space, he's going to get a instead of opposition. And a lot of us, what we have to realize is that we are part of a different generation, right? We we are one of the earliest generations that was born and raised to some semblance integration. Obviously, we're still segregated in a lot of ways. But what I mean is a lot of us have found ourselves in predominantly white spaces much more than previous generations. And the hardest point in my life spiritually was in the mid-2000s when I was living in Jackson, Mississippi, because I was doing this work with The Witness, with Pastor Mike, with racial justice. And guess what? My seminary is predominantly white and Southern. My church is multi-ethnic, but still predominantly white. The people I'm living around, still predominantly white. So where is that space? And, 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 and we got to speak those words of healing to Black people, because it's not that you need to completely isolate yourself from white people at all. But where is your home base? Where is the community that gives you energy? Where is that space where you don't have to explain yourself and your reality? Because if you don't have that, all you're doing is putting out, putting out, putting out without ever taking in and reju rejuvenating and recharging. Man, that's so good, Jamar. Thank you for sharing that. That's so important. Um, and, and to that point, you know, a couple of people, I know this is going long. I'm just going we just here. Um, you know, we'll wrap up soon, I guess. No greetings and God bless. Yeah, no greetings <laughs> and God bless. Um, one of the things I will say is like, you know, people in, a couple of people in the chat have talked a little bit about this idea of of, of formalizing black, black Christian leadership. Like, what does that look like? Mm -hmm. And I think the question is, if we want to talk about things that we're on the brink of, I think we're on the brink of denominations being recontexted. And I'm not saying that denominations lose their credibility or lose their authority, but denominations being recontext and placed in a different context of what they're actually supposed to do and their power and credibility and authority. Um, because what I think is happening is there is going to be more cross-denominational, interdenominational collaboration than ever has been before because it's it's it necessitates, the moment necessitates it. Yeah, I can't tell you the last time... I don't know if it's true or not, but I can tell you the last time I've had a debate about a minor non-essential doctrinal issue. Like, yeah, we care about it, but it's like we're in a pandemic. Secondary and, issue, yeah. And we're and we're we're being, you know, hunted. <laughs> it's a double pandemic. Like, is there any, you know, nobody's really thinking about that right now in as much as we would have been before because we have privilege and luxury to have those arguments. And I think that again gets back to um, the necessity of what it means for us to formalize it. And I think I'm down to formalize what that looks like as far as black Christian leaders in our space. Um, I don't know what you're, you're the visionary. What does that look like, Jamar? What does it look like to formalize black Christian leadership and come together? Is there like an umbrella organization that can be created? That's not always one person at the top necessarily, like or it's like connections, <laughs> you know, what'd you say? 
We need something like a collective. I don't know. <laughs> nah, but I'm not even saying. But see, this is the idea. Is, is a lot of people have this mentality. Like, oh, I know, I know what you think. Oh, it, it needs it. to be. It needs to be. I think there's collectives within the collective, right? And so I think we're a collective within within a broader collective. So I think a lot of people think that if Absolutely. we say, man, if we join up with this organization or that organization, that they're gonna want to take the lead. They're gonna want to take charge. And and we've been guilty of that infighting. Everybody's been guilty of that infighting. And I think the question has to be: at a certain point, we put down our ego. And we say, yes, we have different organizations yeah. and different, um, you know, mentalities. A lot of this is black. A lot of this is black manhood. I don't really see this from Truth's table. I don't really see this from Truth. A lot of it's like black man stuff. We got some wounds. Yeah, we just absolutely. not willing to work out in therapy. Like, you really, you know we that, right? Therapy. Like, we got a lot of stuff. It's yeah. like a lot of black men, black Christian men drama. Anyway, that's too real. That's yes. too real for Facebook Live. I need to save that for something else. <laughs> um. No greetings and God bless here, folks. Uh, I think it's a combination as usual, right? Like, I do think what in in the 50s and 60s, you had the NAACP, you had SNCC, you had the SCLC, you had CORE, you had all these sort of organizations that were national in scope that when you did want to collaborate, you at least knew who to go to. And, and that's a question that I think we need to ponder is like, if we could Voltron up, as you say, what would be the parts? Who, wh- which would be the organizations, right? So that's that's some thinking that we have to do. I think we're in a different age of, um, especially with 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 social media, with blogs, with with YouTube. It's it's flattened out things to where anybody can have a say and anybody can have a voice, which has been really beneficial in some ways, but it also makes sort of core leadership a little bit harder to identify. Um, I don't know the how, but I do know that we have to, in some sense, come together as a collective, not just the witness, a black Christian collective, but a black Christian collective, broadly speaking, and have some voices uh, that, that, that we can look to. Um, yeah, here's what yeah, I think. Ahead. Here's what I think is even more important, Jamar, even more important than the organizational like what are the particulars of a Voltron situation with black Christian leadership? There is something I think even more important. And that is black Christian leaders need a new source of money. Man, look, and I know, and I know that's exactly, we talk about that with the witness (laughs) foundation and what you're doing, but man, we need money behind the money. This is what we need to do. People are like, man, what are we, we need, we need resources and 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 wealth um, that is not tied to whiteness, and that is the greatest challenge, is ensuring that because when it gets down to it, people are always like, man, what are we gonna do it? What what are we gonna do about money? How are we gonna fund it? How are we gonna do this? How are we gonna do that? How are we gonna? Make, gonna and say. at a certain point, it's like, yo, it, we have to we have to have a completely separate source, a separate stream. Um, you know, substances that people, you know, sustenance that people know not of, as Jesus would say, right? Like, like you don't even know the meat that I have. I eat meat you don't even know about. Like, that's what we need to have when it comes to Black Christian collaboration and organization. That's going to be the key. And that's going to be the, the thing that I think is um, is so important. I was just going to say that, like, Literally, as as basic as it sounds, money keeps so much of our work hampered. It sets the ceiling for so much of our work. So you can look at things like 
uh, Be the Bridge, Build a Better Us, Jude 3 Project, all of it relies, all of us are nonprofit, right? All of it relies on the generosity of people uh, uh, to give to this mission. And if we don't have the funding, then guess what? People can't be full time. And if people can't be full time, they can't they can't take their organization and their work to the next level. This is what we're trying to do with the Witness Foundation is um, I'll say this because I don't think folks um, who are listening have have all heard this, but we've refined our mission. So so our goal is to uh, raise a million dollars annually. And uh, to do so, we want to. um if we do that, what we want to do is form a cohort of 20 people who we fund at $50,000 a year. These are black Christian leaders working in all different kinds of sectors. It could be policy work. It could be, uh, uh, you know, orphan care. It could be uh, racial justice, whatever it might be. And, and the point is we are investing in people who we think are, you know, the next generation of civil rights leaders for 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 this moment, right? But so often, the reason why money is so important, so often what limits us is that we, we don't have the funding to do it. And honestly, with the racial wealth gap, I don't know how you get there without white money. Uh, so so the, the folks who contribute have Look, to do it without strings attached. We need giving circles, man. That's what they do. And, and we, we need a whole bunch of different things. There's a lot of different things that I think are so important. And I'm so glad that as you've, you've streamlined that, you've streamlined that agenda and the mission of what the Witness Foundation is, because I think it's going to be so incredible to see people go through that, you know, and walking through that. Um, and, and I think, yeah, I do think it's true. Like, yes, I do think it's true that we need to give. I do think it's true that we need to give, but, but I think that, I think, I don't want to get too hoteppy, but I, I think there's like, <laughs> here we go. Here we go. I don't want to get too like, ah, oh, it's trauma and survival and all this. I, I, yeah. I think there is a sense of, man, we can't get past surviving. Yes, you know, absolutely. we can't get past surviving and then enjoying thriving. We, we want to enjoy thriving so much. That it's yes. really hard. And I think that's like that's a generational mindset. Anyway, there's a lot, there's a lot that goes into so, that. So the other point there is we can't do this by ourselves, right? Like the reason we're so tired is because we're shouldering a disproportionate burden as black people to work against anti-black racism. And this is where we need white people to get their people. Like every tweet I put out, it could be the mildest thing. And there's some white person who jumps in there with an alt-right or hyper conservative agenda to disagree. And I don't respond to that. And a lot of times I don't even see it. But knowing that it's out there is even mentally exhausting. Right. And here's the thing. This goes back to a point you made way earlier. Um, if we don't connect what's happening right now to our political stances, we're going to be not, I won't even say right back where we are. We're going to be in a worse spot. It's going to be retrenched. So, yeah, this man in the White House needs to be out. I don't care if you're Republican, Democrat, independent, whatever. He's dishonest. He's inciting violence. This is not about conservative or liberal or anything. This is about somebody who can actually lead. You wouldn't tolerate this kind of, quote unquote, leadership in your local youth group. You wouldn't tolerate it at your local library, but you're going to tolerate it in the White House. Get this man out. I'm sick of it. No excuses. If it comes back Talk, in 2020... Sir that we got 81% of white evangelicals voting for this man, if it comes back 61%, that's not an improvement. You've missed it. 
So if you're speaking out in this moment of crisis because you see protests in the street or you saw a video of a black man getting killed and you don't do anything in the voting booth in November. Now, this is all presuming that we have elections in November because I wouldn't put anything Look. past this administration. <laughs> oh, at this point. That's where we're on the brink, brother. We might not even have elections. You know what I'm saying? This this thing, uh, Kemeny's been saying it for, for years. We, we are living under a regime, and it's becoming more and more obvious every day. And this is where we have to count the cost. This is where we have to say, okay, when it comes down to the movement, when it comes down to actually protesting this, this blatant injustice, are we going to take it as business as usual? Is, is my tweet enough? Is my PayPal donation enough? Or are we going to actually do some things. Do I got to quit my grad program so that I can be up in Minneapolis? I don't know, but we got to start counting the cost. Okay. So, so, so let's wow. not assume wow. and let's not detach these issues that we're seeing right in front of us from the broader arc, because uh, uh, what, what all the activists say is that the, the, the window breaking you're seeing, the looting that you're seeing, guess what? That's connected to a lot of things. It's connected to the fact that our public education is connected to property taxes. And so guess what? Poor people are never going to get a fair shake in our education system. It's connected to the fact that there's voter purges. And, 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 and without that, we might have a black woman governor in Georgia. It's all connected to it's, it's connected to policing and it's rooted in the slave patrols and, and the police union contracts that we never get to see and is protecting the people with guns who have authorization from the state to kill us dead in the streets. So all of these things is all are integrated is what I'm saying. And so, so we're going to have to disentangle the white supremacist from our politics, from our education, from our theology, from our ecclesiology. And, and if we don't do that at this brink moment, then we're part of the problem. It's not just that we missed it. It's that we're promoting the prejudice. We're sanctioning the oppression, and wow. we can't do that. We, it's not, it, we we got to move beyond this complicit Christianity and have a courageous Christianity. Man, that's the doors of the church are open. That's that, I mean, what else? The doors man, of the I'm church, sick of it, man. I'm sick of the it. doors I'm of the of, church. Are open. I'm sick of the. I'm sick of the backlash. I'm sick of the white backlash. You can't. You can't stand by. While they they jump on our sisters at Truth Table yes. or or yes. Tyler Burns or anybody, when we make a comment that you know is true, I want you yeah. to speak out on social media, but I also want you to speak out in your churches. Like this Collect is your no, people. don't be scared, don't be scared of the Trump voter who says, "Oh well, you know, it just pushes back." No, like enough is enough. You know this man is wrong, and it's not just this man; it's everybody who fell in line behind this man, and it's. Everything that led up to the context got this man elected. Because you can't tell me right now that, that, that white Christian churches are sufficiently detached from this political agenda that they've been inculcated in for a generation that you're going to see in the next five months some big difference in, in the voting booth. And that's just a presidential. Look at local, look at state, all of it. So, so that's where white people need to get their people. But I think for me, I am trying to say, I'm trying to enter into these conversations and these, these movements with the expectation, the expectation, the expectation that people are going to disagree and push back. I had a therapist. I'm, I'm, I'm amplifying therapy as much as I can. I have a therapist. I do it through betterhelp.com. Uh, is a black Christian woman. She does not play. <laughs> I'm like, you're a therapist. You should be like, you know, gently coaxing me. She, it, 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 when, when I need to hear the truth, she speaks the truth. And, and, and one of the things that I'm taking away is I've entered into 
these actions and these spaces with the expectation that I'm going to persuade people, that people are somehow going to come around to my way of thinking, uh, that that when people push back, it shouldn't be happening. I, I've been so dense. Jesus told us to expect that. Jesus told us to go in with that assumption that you're going to be persecuted, that there's going to be pushback. And it's freeing, honestly, because then you don't feel like you did something wrong when people talk bad about you. Then you don't feel like you failed when when there's opposition. So I just think we need to have that mentality as we go in. And it is a straight up battle, right? Like these are powers and principalities. And this is life or death, literally, because George Floyd is dead. He's dead. His family and friends are dead. Have you ever been to a funeral? They're doing that for him. He's gone. He will not be back in this life. This is life or death. And I don't know what God is calling me to. I'm, I'm scared of what God is calling me to. I can only lean on God's strength and God's faith for whatever God is calling me to as an individual, as Jamar. But, but I think we all have to have that conversation with ourselves and Jesus. What is he calling you to? Man. I don't know. The doors of the church are open, saints. What more can we say? Um, yeah, man, I, I have nothing. You covered it all. Thank you. Thank you, bro. I'm not apologizing for my anger. Because Thank you, bro. George Floyd is dead. He's Those dead. People are dead. He ain't here. Uh, man, we wanted to come on here, and a couple of people have said this on the chat. You know, we want to come on here and create a space for black Christians to work this stuff out. And, you know, tangentially, secondarily, Christians who are uh, committed to racial and social justice and trying to uh, push through these things. Uh, but, you know, our heart is black Christians and we are a, a black Christian collective. And so we have people from um, across the country, across the world to have tuned in. And so uh, black Christians, we see you um, and we just want you to know um, as you enter into tomorrow, I just want to say something um, I just want to say th something, especially for the black Christians who are entering into a space tomorrow, virtually or physically, depending on whatever your church is doing, mm. um, and you're not being valued, mm. um, and you're having a fight, and you're tired, and you're exhausted. And um, I just want to say, don't give up. I just want to say, take care of yourself. I just want to say, God sees you ain't the only one. Um, don't think that, but prioritize what God has called you to do, prioritize health, prioritize your purpose. Um, and man, if, if, if that space is continuously pressing out your heart and pressing out your energy and pressing out your strength and your resolve, get Come out, on, it, Doc. man, preach please on, get Doc. out, please get out. I, I'm dead serious about the black yeah. regret thing. I think that's a real thing. And I know people are really upset um, about that. And they're really pressed about that. And, you know, they're like, man, what if this happens or what if that happens? The God who, who supplies food to the ravens, he will take care of you. I promise you. He will take care of you. But get out. Stop. Yeah, um... Get out, please. Like, I'm, I'm pleading with you. If this is a place, like, a lot of people are in, and, and because of guilt and because of shame and because of us acting as though we don't need us acting as though we need certain approvals and certain cosigns that we never need. We never needed it, but they told us that we needed it. Um, what, did, what did Malcolm say that the greatest crime isn't, isn't racism and lynching, but it's, it's this mask of self-hate and self-doubt, right? That, that was given to us. And, and people have doubted themselves. They've doubted what they need. They've doubted all these things. Man, get, get up out of there, man. Um, 
prioritize your health. Don't don't be 60 and 70 with regret. Don't do it, man. Um, you're too important. You're too important to us to do that. So yeah, yeah we need you alive. <laughs> Let me end. Um, I'm preaching on Psalm 13 tomorrow. And uh come on, come on, preacher. Come on, preacher. <laughs> I just want to read it and then and, and, and close Let's us go. out. Um, but it says, How long, oh Lord, will you forget me forever? How long? Will you hide your face from me? How long must I take counsel in my soul and have sorrow in my heart all the day? How long shall my enemy be exalted over me? Consider and answer me, O Lord my God. Light up my eyes, lest I sleep the sleep of death. Lest my enemies say I have prevailed over them. Lest my foes rejoice because I am shaken. But I have trusted in your steadfast love. My heart shall rejoice in your salvation. I will sing to the Lord because he has dealt bountifully with me. Amen. And amen. Amen. We love y'all, man. Um, yeah, I think that's it, man. I think we got it that's out. It. Uh, this won't be the last conversation that we have. Um, I think Ali and Adam are talking about Ali Henny and Adam are talking about coming on and doing some stuff, um, uh, here within the next few days, Jamar and I'll be back on. We got some more conversations that are coming to you. Um, man, take care of yourself. You know, watch your back out there. Look out for each other. You know, Rona is still, Rona is still alive and, and well, Rona did not get the, the word that, we were protesting and I saw that last night. I was like, ah, man, we might all get this Rona though. Um, such is life, such it. is, such is the nature of being black in America. Uh, might get sick protesting your freedom um, and your, mm. and your, and for your dignity. So we love you guys and uh, we'll see you soon. Anything else you want to knock out Jamar? Anything else you want to tell them? See you soon on the next. Pass the, the mic. mic. Peace. <laughs> This episode was brought to you in part by The Compelled Podcast, which uses gripping, immersive storytelling to bring Christian testimonies to life. Listen to missionaries, addicts, martyrs, and more who have seen Jesus at work in unbelievable ways. Listen on your podcast app or compelledpodcast.com.